I'm going to pray. Have you all got your Bibles there? You're going to need your Bible tonight. So either get out your smartphone and turn off Facebook uh, and get your your phone going uh, or uh, get out the Bible from the pew in front of you. Uh, Let me open up my Bible so I'm ready. And you should also, has everyone got a copy of that uh, outline that I had sitting on the back pew there? Put up your hand if you haven't got a copy of the, the outline. If you didn't get one on the way through, put your hand up now. You'll need it over the course of the night. Howard is more than happy to bring it for you. I'm going to pray. So let's, uh, let's pray before we start. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to uh, take this time out tonight, to spend time together to think about your word and consider it and how it applies to us. And we pray that this night will be a blessing to us all, that we will be encouraged, that we'll be challenged, that we'll be spurred on, possibly even a little bit rebuked by your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been looking forward uh, to tonight for some time. It's always good to get together with other men. Uh, It's always good to talk together, to challenge each other, to spur each other on. One of my favourite verses is Proverbs 27, verse 17. Look at it there on that bit of paper. It says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Uh, that's my prayer for us, like I just prayed a moment ago, for, our, for we men, that we might sharpen one another. And it's my prayer that we do it every week. You know, on Sundays, we should be sharpening one another. In our, our gospel teams, our small groups that meet on you know, Wednesday and Thursday nights, and, like, and so uh, we should be doing it there. We get opportunities to encourage one another and challenge one another and push one another on in the gospel all the time. Uh, Iron sharpening iron. That's what we should see across all our congregations in our church. That's what we want to be doing. But there's something great about getting together as a larger group like this, I think. Uh, A larger group of men. There's something about uh, doing that that helps us as Christian men sharpen one another. Even just the very act of being here helps sharpen one another, I think, and encourage one another. And I think we need that. Uh, And the guys who aren't here tonight are missing out. And you should share with them what they've missed out on and uh, and seek to encourage them with whatever you learn tonight. And I think we need things like this mainly uh, because one of the great dangers, I think, for the modern church uh, is what I would call spiritual lethargy or spiritual dullness among men. Uh, Often there are women doing great things for the gospel in our churches and men are either missing totally or just sort of limping along as Christians. Uh, Sort of hanging in there often. When I talk to men, they're often just sort of hanging in there with Jesus, hanging in there with church, but really just hanging in there. Uh, Often life is hard. Especially when you reach a certain age that I think I reached a few years ago uh, and some of you reached it earlier than me. Uh, Often life is hard. Work takes it out of us. You're just sort of struggling to work out what to do with your kids and you're not really that certain what it is you're meant to be doing. Uh, And we're a bit like the soil in Jesus' parable that uh, we heard a few weeks ago uh, at church where the weeds of worry and the weeds of insecurity and the weeds of busyness just sort of grow up around us and stop us being fruitful. Uh, So my purpose for tonight is very, very simple. It's to encourage you. 
It's to spur you on and maybe just challenge you a bit and I hope this part of the Bible that we're looking at might just help us a little bit. Uh, does that sound good? That's what we're going to do. If it doesn't sound good, it's okay, I'm the minister and that's what we're doing. But anyway, well, the part of the Bible we're looking at is one of the most bloodthirsty parts of the Bible. Uh, and I've chosen that on purpose. It's about war, it's about warriors, and I've been wanting to speak on it for ages, but I didn't think the ladies would appreciate it. So I've organised tonight. So there you go. Uh, the Bible spends a lot of time talking about war. It's actually one of the big themes of the Bible, talking about war and fighting and all that sort of thing. When I got taken along to Sunday school as a kid, uh, before I'd rebelled and stopped going, one of the songs we used to sing was, and I'll see if you went to Sunday school at the same era, join me in singing it so I'm not singing alone into a microphone. But this is it. I'm too young to march in the infantry. Come on, guys. In the cavalry. Do the actions. The artillery. I'm too young to fly over land and sea, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Does anyone else know it? There you go. There you go. And we loved it. And I loved it because boys loved that sort of stuff. And when it got to fire the artillery, we'd go into each other and punch each other. And that's what Sunday school's meant to be. Uh, but a subtle change happened over time. Sometime around the mid-70s, they changed the flyover bit from fly over the enemy to fly over land and sea. Because enemy's just a bit too... We don't want to talk about enemies. And now we don't sing it anymore at all because the parents would complain. We're sort of uncomfortable with that sort of talk now, especially with all the you know, Islamic jihad and holy war and Christians or people in the name of Christianity killing each other in places like Northern Ireland. We're just really uncomfortable with talk about war and enemies and all that sort of thing. Uh, but we need to reclaim it. We need to claim it back because it's totally biblical. One of the main images the Bible uses for the Christian and for the Christian life is that we are in a war. Uh, the world is at war with God, is what the Bible says. Uh, and sin and the world and the devil are waging war against God's followers. But the weapons are not bombs and, and rifles and swords and that sort of thing. Generally the weapons seem much more innocuous and much more innocent. See, the weapons the devil uses are things like the pressures of this world, the, the pressures of busyness. You haven't got time to read your Bible. You haven't got time for church. It, it's the pressure to be like other people. It, it's the pressure to love the things of this world, the pressure to conform to this world, it, the pressure to tone down our witness to this world and not stand out and not be different. It's the pressure to give in to temptation. That's the weapons, that's the battle we're fighting. Often the attacks aren't full frontal assaults. They're subtle pressures to just move Jesus out of the centre. Just shift him out of the centre of your life and put something else in the centre of your life. Often something really, really good, like family or, or ambition in our career. Or they're really subtle pressures just to give in to temptations, give in to greed or whatever. And, and the weapons we fight back with are not swords or guns either. What does the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6? He says, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And so our weapons, he says, are faith 
and prayer and fellowship and the word of God and things like that. See, being a man of God in the midst of our world takes real strength. A willingness to stand up and be counted and in particular, being a man of God means standing up and being counted for our King. Standing up and being counted for Jesus. He is the one we are fighting for. Now if you're listening to me saying all that stuff and you don't get what I'm talking about, if you think I'm being overly dramatic or sort of putting it on to make a point, then I want to say to you, you're either not a Christian and that's great that you are here. That's the first thing. Uh, Because if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't understand what I'm talking about because you're not fighting the same spiritual battle and you don't know that Jesus is the king. And so I want to say it's great that you're here because I want you to come to know the Jesus we're fighting for. So that's the first thing. Or it might just be, if you think I'm sort of exaggerating a bit, it might just be that you've lost your zeal as a Christian. It might just be that you're so lukewarm that you've forgotten you're in a spiritual battle for the king. You know, Jesus is such a peripheral part of your everyday life, of your everyday thoughts, of your everyday actions, that really life is more about work and more about kids and more about sport and more about whatever else that has taken the place that should be Jesus's. But for most of us here, I know you are having a red hot go at living for Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. And it's a spiritual battle, living in this world for Jesus. Now, I can talk a lot about what that battle looks like. I can go to the New Testament and talk all about it, about standing up and being counted for Jesus. And we often do it, but tonight I want to do something a little bit different. Uh, I want to encourage you to stand up and be counted for your king by looking at some people who have done it. So I want us to look at an obscure part of the Bible Uh, and some men here I reckon have probably never even heard of it. In fact probably most of us have never even heard of it. It's 2 Samuel chapter 23. So open up to 2 Samuel chapter 23 and it's a group of men that get called David's warriors or as I prefer it, David's mighty men. Who's ever heard of them? There you go, a few of us, good. Anyone name any of them without looking it up? No, we're struggling there. Well, that's good. Good, just look at it, isn't it? Before we get to it, we have to understand the context here and remember David was God's great king. David was the original Messiah, the original anointed one, the saviour king of God's people. And David's story, you can read about it in 1 and 2 Samuel. So if you get excited about tonight, go home and read all of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, It's an amazing story. You know bits of it from Sunday school because they're great Sunday school stories. David as a young boy, what did he do? When none of the other warriors of Israel would do it, he went and faced the giant Goliath. And with his sling and not much else, he knocked him over and killed him. Uh, David had to live for years as a fugitive, basically, because Saul, who was the king before him, wanted him killed. Uh, But eventually he became king and David was this incredible general. He conquered the city of Jerusalem. He made it the the capital of all Israel. He brought the ark of God into Jerusalem so that God was in his city and and ruling his people. David saw off revolts all over the place. He killed off all the enemies of Israel, the Philistines and all the others. David was God's chosen king and God worked through him and gave him the victory. But then right at the end 
of David's story, at the end of 2 Samuel, we just get this little bit where it tells us about David's mighty men. Uh, I love westerns. I especially love The Magnificent Seven. Who's ever watched The Magnificent Seven? It's an older western. All the good ones are the old ones. Uh, Yul Brynner, you know, the bald guy who doesn't even speak with an American accent. It was quite funny that he was the guy. But anyway, in that movie, it's these seven hard nuts, basically, these seven uh, crazy cowboys. And they, even though they're all sort of got their rough edges, they ride into town to protect this group of people from the baddies, basically. And even though they all know they're going to die, they go in there and do it. This is David's Magnificent 37. They are the heroes who would do anything for God's king. And if nothing else, I think we'll have a great time listening to these stories. But if you are a Christian, I'll be amazed if their courage and their devotion to their king doesn't challenge you uh, and challenge you to want to do something amazing for the once and for all true king, our Lord Jesus. So let's look at it. Open up to 2 Samuel 23 verse 8. There were 37 of these men, but before dinner we're just looking at what I'm calling the famous three. And the first of those is a guy called Josheb Bashabeth. Say that three times quickly. Uh, Josheb, I'm just going to call him Josheb from now on. He was David's general. David had massive armies, but then he had this sort of crack fighting unit of 37. And even in that 37, there were then the famous three. Uh, and Josheb, he was the chief of the three. That's who he was. In a movie, he would be John Wayne or Yul Brynner or sadly today, Tom Cruise probably. But look from verse 8. These are the names of David's warriors. Josheb Bashabeth, I can't even say where he's from, the Tarchemonite was chief of the officers. He wielded his spear against 800 men that he killed at one time. And that's it. That's all you read about him in the Bible. You just want to know more, don't you? You want to know how it happened. You know, you know, uh, did they come on him all at once and he was sort of like a berserker in one of those kung fu movies, you know, spinning around with his spear, just killing them all? Or I think what probably happened was he got sort of in a crevice or something, you know, you know a place where the cliffs come together where they had to come at him one at a time and one after the other. He rammed his spear in and killed 800 of them. We don't know how it happened. But gee, it's inspiring, isn't it? Josheb Bashabeth. And if you think about it, you don't need to know much to know that he had two options that day. As 800 Philistines came against him, he had two options that day, didn't he? He could run away or he could stand and fight. They were the two options. He could run away or, or, you know, part of that might have been handing himself over to the Philistines and say, oh, it's all a misunderstanding, guys. I'm actually one of you. He could have done that or he could stand and fight even though he knew he would probably die. And what did he do? He chose to stand and fight. And why did he do it? Because he was David's man. That's why he did it. He did it for the love of his king, for the love of God's king. Now, we are never likely to be in this position. Is there anyone who's ever found themselves facing 800 Philistines with a spear? We are never likely to be in this position. So what does this teach us? Paul in 2 Corinthians says all of these stories are written for our benefit. What does this teach us? How is this for our benefit? Well, I think it's because we face the same choice for God's king every day. Compromise 
or stand firm. We face that same choice every day, compromise or stand firm. And we are often, like Joshua, the Christian amidst the hundreds. See, it is hard living as a Christian in this world if, like some of you, you are the only Christian in your family. Or like some of you, you are the only Christian in your workplace or the only Christian in your uni course. Think about for our kids in our schools where often they are the only Christian, the only one who goes to youth group. It's hard, it's really hard to swim against the tide and so the temptation is always to compromise, to compromise on godliness to compromise in our witness. I remember when I worked with a firm in the city and the culture was basically a, a, a boy's old school Thai culture. So the idea was you fitted in if you drank, swore and made jokes about women. That was the culture. It was really, really hard. It is really, really hard in that sort of culture to stand up against it. And sometimes we fail, don't we? It's much easier to compromise and join in, especially if you're the only Christian. And it's even harder to stand up and name Jesus in environments like that, isn't it? You know, say, actually, I'm a Christian. Can I talk to you about my king? I think it's easier for Joshua than it is sometimes to do that. Do you know Alice Cooper? You know, the heavy metal guy, Poison, that awful film clip, you know? Uh, Apparently he became a Christian at some point. I don't know how he rationalises his songs or his film clips, that's for another day. Uh, But this is what he said, I'll read it out. He said, drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy. But living as a Christian, that's a tough call. That's real rebellion. People would say to him, you're a real rebel, Alice. He'd say, no, 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 real rebellion is standing up and being counted for Jesus. In our world, a world that tolerates and even glorifies sin... It's hard standing firm for Jesus, isn't it? Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I've put it on your outline there. Maybe he had Joshua in mind, who knows? He says this. He says, But you, man of God, run from these things. He's listed out all different areas of ungodliness. But you, man of God, run from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the faith. Take hold of eternal life that you were called to and have made a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. See, that is your calling. If you are a Christian, that is my calling, to stand firm and fight the good fight for the faith like Joshua did a thousand years earlier. Let's move on to mighty man number two, a guy called Eleazar. Look at verse 9. It says, after him, Eleazar, son of Dodo, son of an Aohite, was among the three warriors with David when they defied the Philistines. The men of Israel retreated in the place they had gathered for battle, but Eleazar stood his ground and attacked the Philistines until his hand was tired and stuck to his sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Then the troops came back to him, but only to plunder the dead. Isn't that a great story? Everyone else ran away. I mean, they came back later once the fighting was done. There's nothing worse than when people come back later, is there? Come back later and say, oh, wasn't that great? We won. When they weren't there to help. Not Eleazar. He stood there with his king. 
He stood there with David and it didn't matter how many came, he kept fighting. And he killed one after the other, so much so that his hand was sort of locked onto his sword. You just have this picture, don't you, where they had to sort of prise his fingers open at the end, almost crack his finger. My finger cracked as I did that, I'm just imagining it, you know. Crack his fingers off this sword. I, I have a picture in my mind of Eleazar looking like Rocky Balboa at the end of Rocky 1. I don't believe in Rocky 2 to whatever, no, only Rocky 1. I have this image of him at the end of Rocky 1, you know, bruised and battered but unbroken. That's Eleazar. The last of the three, look at Shammah. It's a similar story with verse 11. After him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had assembled in formation where there was a field full of lentils. Interesting facts in the Bible, aren't they? But anyway, the troops fled from the Philistines but Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field, defended it and struck down the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. I love that story. I don't think Shammah did this because he really liked lentils. Uh, It wasn't because he loved vegetarian curries or something like that. Uh, He did it for his king. That's why he did it. He did it for God. God had promised this land to David and the Israelites and he was done if he was going to let the Philistines have it. That's what Shammah was thinking. It's great stuff, isn't it? But see, what those two mighty men make me think is sort of what heroes... But gee, it's hard to stand firm when everyone else is giving in, isn't it? So just put yourself in Eleazar or or Shammah's shoes there. One minute you're there with everyone else standing next to you and you're thinking it's going to be a hard fight but I think we can do it. And then you go, Fred, and suddenly you're the only one left. Everyone else is headed for the hills. One minute you're there with everyone else next to you. Next minute you're thinking, where'd they go? You'd forgive Eleazar and Shammah for running, wouldn't you? Then? But they didn't. They stood firm. As we were looking at Joshua, we thought about our battle and how hard it is to stand firm when you're on your own and when you're outnumbered. It's even harder when our brothers let us down, isn't it? See, it's harder when our brothers are compromising all around us. Then it's so hard not to compromise when our brothers make ungodly or unwise decisions, then we think, well, if it's good enough for them, why am I fighting? Why am am I the only one standing firm? If other Christians are having one too many drinks after work, why am I the only one not doing it? You know, if they don't make church a priority, then why am I the only one having this battle with my kids every Sunday morning to get out the door and and get get to the church if my brothers don't make it a priority? You know, can I say, be thankful for these men in our church and make sure you are an encouragement to these men around you. I was talking to a mate of mine, not at our church, and none of you know him or his church because it's not even in this city. Uh, This mate of mine is a great evangelist and he's led some people to Christ recently. He's not a minister, he just does Christianity Explained in his lounge room. Invites dads from school. Anyone he can meet invites them over, does Christianity explain with them. Uh, but he's a real sort of Josheb or, or Eleazar. He just gets on and does it. Uh, but he was sort of metaphorically over the phone crying on my shoulder a couple of weeks ago because there are no other men at his church who seem to get it. 
There's just no other men at his church who are fired up to serve Jesus. They're just all lukewarm. And he was saying to me, the guys he's led to Christ, he doesn't let them come to church with him. He doesn't let them. He just keeps them in his little Bible study group and that's the church he has them in because he's too ashamed of the men in his church and he doesn't want these guys to think that's Christianity. That all Jesus calls from you is to turn up to church once in a while when you feel like it and you're not too busy with family stuff. And when work and football's all you talk about. He says, I don't want these guys who've come to know my Lord Jesus, I don't want them to meet those men and think that's what Christianity is. Now I challenged him about that. But at the same time I had to say, I understand. See, he feels a little like Eleazar amidst a lukewarm group of compromisers. Isn't that sad that that churches can be like that? Be thankful for these group of men. Be thankful for the men you meet with each week and be an encouragement to one another. Don't compromise. In a way though, uh, it was easy for Josheb and Eleazar and Shammah because their enemy was flesh and blood. You know, they had simple choices. Pick up your spear and your sword, fight for God or run away. Simple as that. But you know, what is our spear to fight against the odds like Joshua? What is our sword to fight with even when others are running away? Well, the great thing about the New Testament is it says that you get to play with swords too. Not just fire, but swords. But our sword is what? It's the word of God. Just look at the verses I've put there on your outline. I've got to turn the page. I am going on. Ephesians 6, 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Or Hebrews 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. See, the word of God is both our defensive weapon and our offensive weapon. It's defensive in that it's the word of God that equips us to stand firm. It strengthens our faith. It rebukes us. It encourages us. It challenges us. It gives us the wisdom and the guidance we need to know how to live for Jesus. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. You know it really well. This is what it says. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. But I think it's really sad how we often stop at the end of verse 16 there and don't read verse 17, which says, So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, just like you sort of think Eleazar would have felt incomplete if he'd walked out and said, where's my sword? Where is it? Well, we are incomplete as men of God without the word of God. See, the Bible is our sword to stand firm, but it's also our attacking weapon. Do you want to see people saved? You can answer, you know. You don't have to be African to answer questions when the preacher says it. Everyone can do it. Do you want to see people saved? Do you want to see people changed? Do you want to see people grow in godliness? Well, it's only by sharing God's word with them that it happens. 
We have no other weapon. This here, the Bible, is more powerful than Joshua Bashabeth's spear. It's more powerful than Eleazar's sword. How much time have we got till dinner? I've got a couple of minutes. Can I open up a bit here and just share a bit honestly with some sort of home truths but maybe, maybe a little bit pricklyly, if that's a word. Uh, there are a lot of men in the modern church and in our church, and this might be you, who instead of being like Eleazar, walking into battle with a massive broadsword, are wandering around holding a butter knife. A lot of our men are walking around in a battle with a butter knife. How many men would Joshua have killed with a butter knife? He was pretty amazing. He might have through a hundred, <laughs> but not eight hundred. And why do I say that? Because our men are not serious about knowing their Bible, about studying it, about reading it daily. It is sad when Christians who have been Christians for a while know more about sport or know more about their job than they know about the Bible. It's only one book. You read thicker novels. There is no excuse to not know your Bible. It is like Eleazar saying, I don't need to practice my sword craft, wandering around in this world without knowing your Bible. We need to be serious about reading the Bible. We need to be serious about doing what Dave encourages us to do, about meeting with other people and reading the Bible. Do you know the most manly thing a man can do is read the Bible? We live in a world where we think reading is, is for women. The most manly thing a man can do is read the Bible and the most manly thing a married man can do is read the Bible with his wife. And the most manly thing a dad can do is read the Bible with his kids. There is nothing more important than it. We are in a battle. Every day I am tempted to compromise instead of standing firm for Jesus. I am bombarded with temptations to be worldly and I work for the church. How much harder is it for you? But every day I am bombarded with temptations to be worldly, temptations to be sexually immoral, to watch porn on our computers, to, to covet the bigger house down the road and the bigger car, to make the things of this world my treasure instead of storing up treasures in heaven. It is harder and harder and harder to be on the front foot for Jesus when people don't want to hear about him. If you are a dad, you are trying to raise your kids to follow Jesus in a world where they are told every day that he is a joke or that he is a swear word. We are trying to raise our sons and daughters to be godly and pure in a world where they are told that it is normal to have multiple sexual partners from the age of 15. We are trying to raise our sons and daughters to be pure in a world where they have been introduced to pornography by their friends before the age of 12. That's the statistics. Where they are told that homosexuality is a normal lifestyle choice and within three years it will be taught to them in sex education in their school. We are in a battle. But all too often we walk around in a daze, unarmed, 
when we have the double-edged broadsword. Men, I want to ask you tonight, will you take up the sword like Josheb or like Eleazar or like Shammah or will you not? And I've got to say, our small groups, like I talked about with Dave before, our gospel teams, whatever we call them, are central to this. I was reading a book, another book I was reading during the week, where the guy was saying, we need to think of our Bible study as being like combat training. See, our soldiers go through years of training before they ever set foot in a war zone, but some of our men are wandering around in the war zone and the only training they get is two sermons a month. That's the only time they hear God's word. They get to church one in every two around Billy's soccer and their Bible sits unopened next to their bed. How vital are those times when we get together with other people and read the Bible? They're essential, aren't they? But anyway, I'll finish up this bit. I'll pick it up after dinner. But as I close, one last point. Just look at the end of Shammah's story in verse 12. After these three guys have done these incredible feats, almost in passing, what does it say there? It says, so the Lord brought about a great victory. Or at the end of Eleazar's story there at verse 10, see what it says? The Lord brought about a great victory that day. See, the sword might have been in Eleazar's hand, but it's God who was at work to bring about the victory. And how much more for us? With all this talk of war and all this challenging talk, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that the Lord, our King, has already won the battle for us. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the price has been paid for your sin. Death has been defeated. And now he gives us the weapons in his word and he gives us the strength by his spirit to stand firm in this world and be the men God wants us to be. Isn't that right? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these three great men who have been before us, for Josheb, for Eleazar and for Shammah. We thank you for their courage to stand firm for your king, even as everyone else ran away, as everyone else compromised. And we pray that as we live in this world, where we face temptation at every turn, where the temptation is always to compromise, whether it be in godliness or in holding back from declaring the truth about Jesus, we pray that you might give us the courage to stand firm like these great ones before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.